Leviticus chapter 19, you can open up your Bibles there. I want to uh, thank Les and Jake for their teaching the last couple of Sundays. Yes, I did listen, and both were spot on. Um, Jake's teaching on comfort in affliction, and just the word of comfort at this season is well needed. And Les's word on faith as exercised in obedience um, again, so timely, and, and thank you both for being faithful to the teaching and continuing just the teaching of the word here. It means a lot. I've always said that it means so much to be able to chug out of town or take vacation and know the word is being given. Um, another thing, again, the reminder, as I said when we started, if you didn't hear this, that as far as masks are, are concerned, um, we are just asking at this point that you have a face covering uh, we are going forward. We are looking forward. And, and I, it's difficult because the things that we're doing as a fellowship, all I can tell you and hope that you believe me is that they are not arbitrary decisions. That when we ask you to do something, when we're saying, look, I think we think this is the best way forward or this is what we're supposed to be doing now in this season, we're not being random. We are being prayerful. We're listening. We're asking the Lord over and over and over, are you sure, Lord, is this what you want? Our shepherds are meeting tomorrow night. We're gonna be talking about some really important things for our fellowship and for this, this next year, for going forward. Some vision, really, um, and not in the catchphrase way that sometimes you hear vision, but something to help us wanting to see where we're going, what God's doing. And so I, I invite you, I ask you to pray for our shepherds tomorrow night as we meet. Um, but again, face covering-wise right now, just uh, out of respect for one another and, and trying to still recognize that all this stuff is going on, a face mask, a face shield, but just some kind of covering. Tonight, and this new year, we continue on with the holiness code of Leviticus 17, 18 through 26. This whole section of Leviticus now, as we talked about back before the holidays, is called the holiness code because throughout God is calling the people to be holy as he is holy. As we talked about the last Wednesday that I taught that the recovery of things that had become unholy back to holiness. See, that's, that's the point. God is reclaiming his people to be holy like he is. And it's not that they had never been holy or never followed him or never trusted him We've seen throughout Genesis and into Exodus, there were many who had over the years, but this is a reclamation, a recovery. We called it holy recovery last time we met. The Lord is calling his people back to his holiness, and that is so encouraging to me. Leviticus 19, verse one, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I love that. You know what that means? It means that the unholy can be made holy. What? It means that the tainted can be clean, that the filthy can be pure. It means that even the holy that's become tainted can be made holy again. Such is the grace of God. I'm so thankful for that. Because I am not alone in this room or in this church or in this world with the sense that we all get our hands and feet dirty. We all make decisions that land us in filthy places. 
But we have a God who recovers his own to holiness, who calls us back even out of sin failures that we have made to his holiness. God is a loving, forgiving, redeeming, reclaiming father. And that's the age that we're in right now, the age of grace. He is also an absolutely, perfectly righteous judge, which makes this age of grace that much more remarkable, that much more amazing that right now he's saying, I have my hands extended to you. I want to reclaim you to my own. I want you to know my love and my forgiveness. Has anyone wronged you recently? And maybe bring that person to mind. Part of the beauty of the Father's reclamation of us, of the Father's reconciliation, of his forgiveness, is that it compels ours. That if we are truly to be sons and daughters of God, then we look like he does. We share a resemblance to him. I was telling Les again what came to mind as I was watching the news earlier this evening and all the the stuff going on in D.C. and the protesting and and some of it went into rioting. I do find it interesting that if if it's a certain group of people, they call it a protest, but if it's another group of people, they call it a riot. We won't get into that tonight. But watching all that, and and I was reminded again of what happens when the Spirit is producing in us love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, kindness, self-control. That's when you know the Spirit's in charge, when that fruit is born out in your life. That's also when you know the spirit is not in charge, when the opposite of those things are taking place among us. We are being reclaimed by his holiness to be holy as he is holy. We're reclaimed by his forgiveness to forgive as he forgives, even as Jesus prayed. Matthew 6, 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That we come in alignment with the Father when we love like he loves. When we reclaim relationship like he reclaims us to relationship. When we care about others the way he has cared for us, that's not just a requirement of being a Christian or of the Bible or of the law. That, my friends, is God's holy standard. Be like me, he says. Be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Verse three, every one of you shall revere or reverence, or literally the word there is yareh, fear. Every one of you shall fear his mother and his father. I have tried to work that out in my kids over the years and it just doesn't work so well. Too much humor in my household, I guess. Every one of you shall fear, but it's that reverent fear. It's that holding in awe and deep respect your mother and your father. And you shall keep my Shabbats. Why? I am the Lord your God. How many times have we talked about Sabbath in here? And I... I, Talking with our staff, I know I mention that every Wednesday night because every Wednesday morning we have staff meeting, but talking with our staff earlier today, I was sharing that it's amazing how you can be involved in ministry day in and day out and not hear the Lord so well, but when you go away and get on vacation, you hear crystal clear because it's Shabbat, because it's the time when my soul is quieted before the Lord and my spirit listens, and I had a good week and a half. I'll tell you more about that perhaps Sunday, but good week and a half listening and hearing in Shabbat, he says, remember my Sabbaths. Why? I am the Lord your God. 
He says, verse four, do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. And as we go through this, I'm reminded that no code can make me holy. No law can set you free. With all of this law and covenant and code and holy standard, what the Lord's doing here so clearly is he's calling us to holy freedom in himself. Without God, it doesn't work. Without, you know, we, we've heard the founders say that even about our constitution in America. Take God out of the constitution, it will fail because it becomes nothing but legal standard. Legal standard will not set you free. Biblical standard will not set you free if you try to remove God from it. It is all about focusing back on him, being reclaimed by him. As Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life. It is these that testify of me. It's all about getting back to the Father, drawing near to the Father. He said in Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I've sworn to myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And that's not an overlord saying, you will worship me. That's God knowing that when we worship, we are at our best. We know the greatest peace. We know the greatest comfort. We know the greatest satisfaction when we're worshiping, when we're drawn to him. So he says, do this because I am the Lord your God. And 14 times in this chapter alone, chapter 19, he's gonna say that, I am the Lord. He gives it as the basis of every law requirement. Do this, why Lord? Because I am the Lord your God. That's why we do it. I am the Lord. He repeats that phrase 48 times in Leviticus. So in the book of the Bible where the quoted words of God are more full than any other book. As we've said, more quotes of God in Leviticus than anywhere else. More than any other book, we hear, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. 48 times. Do you get the point, he could say? That the people of Israel were not invited to the law, they were invited to the Lord. And you and I are not invited to a creed, we are called to the Christ that this is personal. And so he, he reviews in chapter 19 several laws and commandments, but as he does so, he hones our calling to his own holiness. He hones it to a fine point, making it clear over and over that the keeping of these things are about drawing near to him. That's the point. Verse five. Now, when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day that you offer and the next day, but what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. So if it is eaten at all on the third day, it's an offense. It will not be accepted. Everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity for he has profaned the holy thing of the Lord and that person shall be cut off from his people. And we looked at this offering previously. We've talked through the peace offering. Why repeat it here? Why does God bring it back forward? In fact, several of these things you would almost think, well, they're various and sundry and random and he's just kind of throwing together a bunch of reminders here. It's all intentional. 
He brings it up here after declaring already several times, I am the Lord, your God, because the peace offering is the fellowship offering with the Lord. It's the one that is all about being at peace with him. And as Paul quotes Micah, Ephesians chapter two, verse 14, Micah chapter five, verse five, he himself is our peace. Remember what we talked about on Christmas Eve? That prince of peace is not actually prince of peace, it's prince and it's peace. That peace is the noun. That every word in Isaiah nine, verse six, they're all nouns that describe who he is. They declare his very nature. He is our peace. The peace offering was to draw the people near to the one who is peace, and that is the Lord. And peace with Jesus must inherently create peace among his people. You cannot be at peace with one another when you're not at peace with God. Nor can you be at peace with God when you are not at peace with your brothers and sisters. Continuing on, verse nine. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. Again, I am the Lord your God. So this is holy welfare. This is how God did it. And it amounted to some 15% of the produce of the field and the vineyard. Leave it. Don't glean to the edge. Don't take every last grape. Don't take every last piece of fruit. You, you, You go to a certain point, leave the edges, leave that which has fallen on the ground. Why? So that those who don't have can come and they can gather and have food. God taking care of his people. But it continues. He says then, verse 11, you shall not steal nor deal falsely nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. If you swear by his name, you're profaning it because God is truth. And any false swearing, anything that's not absolute, that we might say by trying to claim his name in the process is profaning to him because he's true. You shall not oppress, verse 13, your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. In other words, give your employee what's due when it's due. Don't hold back. Verse 14, you shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. Why, Lord? I am the Lord. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Doesn't matter their station in life, judgment must be across the board, equal and fair and right. It says you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Quick pause here. This is a tough one. And it's a tough one, not just for people in general, but it's a tough one among God's people. Israel at the time and the church of today. He says, you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. And the word slander there, in fact, the phrase, you shall not go about as a slanderer. It's lo telek rakil. You don't have to write that down. But what the phrase means literally is you don't 
you don't play the role of a merchant gossip. Telex speaks of someone who's in sales or in business or in, in merchandising and, and you know, door-to-door salesman. But in this case, he combines the word telek, meaning a merchandiser, with rakil, which means to gossip or slander. You're not to merchandise gossip. You're not to be a door-to-door slanderer. You're not to go around from this person, talk to this person, a little and over to this person, a little talk, 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 and over here, a little talk, 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 especially if it has negative overtones for the person about whom you're talking. And this is so clear, and it's so basic, and it's such a problem in the world. It just is. I tell you, and I, I love our fellowship, but I know gossip takes place. I'm not excusing that, and I'm not even pointing a finger at anyone. I just know. How do you know, Rick? Because it happens in my house sometimes. I are guilty. <laughs> it's so easy to close the door behind you, walk in your house and start to about or what people like to do in the church today, prayer and share. Hey, listen, I, we need to pray for our friend. Why? Well, let me tell you. And then the gossip flows. In the, oh, but we're going to pray. Hey, man, come on. It's merchandising gossip. It's trafficking and tail-bearing. Spreading anything that's going to be harmful or hurtful or undermine what a brother or sister is doing. Hey, if you don't know 100% why a person is doing what they're doing, do not say a word about them to someone else. We are not called to talk in the shadows. We are called to walk in the light. Big difference. To walk in the light is to be open and honest and upfront with each other. And if I have concerns about a brother or sister in Christ, I talk to them. I walk in the light with them. I don't take it to anybody else. That's the holy standard that we're called to. Why? Because he's the Lord. That's how he does it. You know, I never once have have caught the Lord talking to someone else negatively about me. Many times he's come right to me with a rebuke, but he doesn't go to other people with that. Jesus said, Matthew chapter five, and this one's really challenging, he says, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. You know what's challenging about that? He doesn't say if you have a problem with your brother, go to him. He says if you know your brother has a problem with you, take the responsibility and go to them. You know, one's got a, know someone's got a bone to pick with you? You go to them. Because we are called to be, as the Bible says, ministers of reconciliation. That's godliness. That's being like our Father. I remember reading that, Matthew 5, for the first time and realizing, wait, he's putting the responsibility on me. When that guy's the one with the problem, I don't have a problem with him. He's got a problem with me. And the Lord says, yeah, so go make it right. Go reconcile. But gossip, slander, trafficking, and tail-bearing, it's absolutely ungodly. And this section now comes to a head with the ultimate treatment we are to have of one another. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart, verse 17. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin Because of him. How do I incur sin because of a neighbor? When I begin to have hatred in my heart. 
when that hatred leads me to slander or gossip, when I start to treat someone as lesser because I got a problem with them, I incur sin. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. Israel, you got to love Israel. Love your brothers and sisters. You're the tribe of Reuben, you love the tribe of Shimon. You're in Zebulun, you love your brother in Naphtali. It makes no difference what tribe you are of. You love your own. Guess what? We are our own. And in fact, when he says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. The love your neighbor as yourself, your neighbor is your fellowship. First and foremost. Now, my neighbor is my next door neighbor who doesn't know the Lord too. And I need to love all people for the sake of the gospel, but I have a primary responsibility to especially love my neighbors in the church, my brothers and my sisters. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why, Lord? Because I am the Lord. And yes, this is the verse. This is where Jesus got it. This exact statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is only here in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, we're told in many places to love people, to even love your neighbor. But this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, it's Leviticus 19, 18, and it's right where Jesus got it. When Mark chapter 10, verse 28, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, he asked him, what commandment is foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. And the second is this. Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. He pulls Leviticus 19, 18 out of the Hebrew scriptures and puts it right up there second only to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. These are the two. And Jesus went on to say, as Matthew records, Matthew twenty two forty, 40, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. That word depend in the Greek is hang or suspend. The entire law is suspended on loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself, which means if either of those fail, the law fails. The law falls crashing, shattered to the ground. It only works as it is suspended by first the love of God and second the love of my neighbor as myself. The sum total of Torah, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. These two conjoined commandments, if you will, to love God and, and to love others. These divine directives are so intimately and intricately linked that you cannot have one of these without the other. I said a moment ago, you can't have peace with God if you don't have peace with your brothers and sisters. And you will not be at peace with your brothers and sisters if you're not at peace with God, even more so love. You cannot love your brothers and sisters and hate God. And you cannot love God while hating your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't do it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We lie to ourselves when we say it's okay for me to have anger and spiteful hate toward that person, but I love the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord on a Sunday. Doesn't work. It's a lie. You have to love the neighbor to love the Lord. And you must love the Lord to love your neighbor. And John goes on and says, the one who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. See, that's the impact of loving God. Understand, he says, come to me. I am the Lord your God. He says, love me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know what happens? When I really love him, I have to love you. I can't help it. It, 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 The love of Christ controls me that I must love my brothers and my sisters if I claim to love him. Listen, if you have contempt for a neighbor, and again, a neighbor being those closest within even the fellowship, but we could extend that to anyone. If you have contempt for a neighbor, your relationship with God will suffer, no question. If you bear animosity toward God, all your other relationships will suffer, no question. These two must be in balance. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a code, it's not an illegality, it is just spiritual truth. We've gotta love both ways. Romans 13, verse eight, Paul said, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Why? Because the law hangs on it. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, Leviticus 19, 18, Paul now quotes, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 19, you are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. What's that about? Now, that's an odd one. That's not in the Ten Commandments. In fact, we have yet to hear that in Torah law. We'll hear it again. Moses is going to repeat it in Deuteronomy 22. I'll read it to you in just a second. But what's the point? In the middle of all this holy code and the repeating of many commandments and the call to love one another, suddenly I can't breed two different kind of cows? Why? I I can't put two different seeds in the same field. Again, this is Mosaic law. This isn't for you. So you can have your apricots and your pears in the same place. Don't worry about it. But I can't wear a garment of a cotton blend? What's the point? No mixing. Holiness is about not mixing. A little bit of Jesus and a little bit of the world. A little bit about what I want and a little bit of what God wants. You can't mix these things together. This is the idea of holiness. Keep things separate. It's a picture of holiness. And listen, all punning aside, this this really works. It's a picture of holiness that is to be woven into the fabric of their lives. That is, even with your cattle, I want you to think holy. Even with planting in the field, 
I want you to think holy. When you're sewing a garment, I want you to consider holiness. Moses repeats it, Deuteronomy 22, verse 9. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, or all the produce of the seed which you have sown, and the increase of the vineyard will become defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. So he adds that one. You know, you can't have moo and hee-haw at the same time. You shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. Again, Lord, what's the point? Don't mix. Consider the separateness of holiness even when you're getting dressed in the morning. Jude wrote, verse 20, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Let me ask you tonight, is our most holy faith, for that is what it is, is our holy faith woven into the fabric of our everyday lives? So that's why God's commanding this that these things would come to mind constantly. Later in Deuteronomy, he's gonna talk about the word and say, this needs to be on your foreheads and on your wrists. This needs to be on your doorpost. It needs to be spoken when you're going out, when you're coming in. Everything that you're doing, I want it to be washed in my word and hear the same idea, holiness, in your everyday. Do we consider our most holy faith when we're walking down the aisle at Safeway? Do we consider our most holy faith when we're out in the garden, the Lord is calling us to holiness because he is holy. Verse 20, now, if a man lies carnally with a woman who is a slave acquired for another man, but who has in no way been redeemed nor given her freedom, there shall be punishment. They shall not, however, be put to death because she was not free. So he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest also shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin which he had committed, and the sin which he has committed will be forgiven him. And this little three-verse section is one I just so wanted to hold off till Sunday just to make you wait. Because <laughs> I read this and I went, What? Huh? Read it again. Look at verse 20. If a man lies carnally with a woman who is a slave acquired for another man but has no way been redeemed or given her freedom, there's no, there shall be punishment, but he shall not be put to death because she was not free. I mean, this is so laden with confusion. How, what? Where's the righteousness here, Lord? So let me explain. In Torah law, Sexual intercourse with a woman who is betrothed to another man. Sexual intercourse with a, an engaged woman then was adultery. So we've talked about how betrothal is more serious even than we think of engagement today. If you were betrothed, the only way to become unbetrothed was to get a divorce. That's how serious it was. It wasn't marriage yet, but it was marriage in every sense except that the two had not consummated the marriage. So if a man and a woman are betrothed, and another guy and the woman, she runs off, they sleep together, it's adultery. And if it's adultery, as we'll see in chapter 20, it is punishable in the law by death. That would change a lot of things in our culture. If adultery was punishable by death today. I remember years and years ago, Steve Martin, 
came up with a great idea. The comedian, he said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about global overpopulation, and he said, I think the solution to that is very simple, death penalty for parking violations. It would change a lot of things. And the Lord says, if two commit adultery, and especially if this is a, if it's a betrothed slash married woman and an unmarried man, they come together, commit adultery, it is worthy of the death penalty. In this case, it's not. Hmm. Why not, Lord? What's this about? And by the way, the Pharisees were way out of line because they tried to apply the adultery law John chapter 8, do you remember the story? To the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, how shameful and embarrassing that must have been, brought her and threw her down on the ground before Jesus in the temple court. You know the story. And they were claiming she committed adultery. Therefore, the law says she must be stoned to death. What do you say? We got him, they thought to themselves. Remember Jesus said, Okay, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Go ahead, throw stones, sinless ones. And we're told in the scriptures, one by one, they departed oldest to youngest. I can just see it. I can see the old man among them going, he is so much smarter than I am. <laughs> and departs, and the next, and the next, and then Jesus straightens up, and he looks at the woman, and he says to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Yeah, but she committed adultery, Lord. Yeah, but there are no witnesses now. Besides the fact that uh, the man was not there and the law called for both parties in an adulterous affair to be stoned and they just wanted to stone the woman and let the man off scot-free and that's not how it works. So Jesus does not condemn her. He says, from now on, sin no more. And I expect to see her in heaven because I imagine with that level of grace poured out on her that day, she never did sin that way again. I can't prove it, but I assume it. Keep that story in mind. But listen, Leviticus 19 verse 20 is an exception to the adultery penalty that we'll see in chapter 20. It's the exception to the rule. In this case, you don't stone them to death if there's been an adulterous affair. Why? Because now there's a third party involved. There's the slave owner. Well, I don't like that, slave owner. We've talked about slavery. It's not slavery like we think of it in, in America's past. It's indentured servitude. And it happened a lot. And in this situation, if this woman who belongs to someone as a, an indentured servant has an affair with a man and they've committed this act of adultery, they are not to be stoned to death because now the interest of the indentured servant's owner is at stake. And so God, by his grace, says, I'll tell you what, we're not gonna condemn you too because it also hurts him, but there still must be a death. There still needs to be a death. The third party would be impacted if it was the death of the woman and the man. So instead of either one of them being put to death, there is a substitutionary death. A ram for a guilt offering must be offered, verses 21 and 22. You know what that says? 
It says that the man who brings the ram for the guilt offering recognizes his guilt. Before the Lord, which means a confession takes place, a recognition of the wrongdoing, and then, yes, there is a death substitutionary of the ram to account for the law. God is a God of grace. Verse 23. Now, when you enter the land and plant all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden. So here's the real forbidden fruit. It was all fruit. The first year in the land, go ahead and plant, but don't eat it. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it shall not be eaten. In the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. In the fifth year, you are to eat of its fruit, that its yield may increase for you. Why, Lord? I am the Lord your God. Now, this is more than just good horticulture, although it is good horticulture. Those who plant fruit trees will tell you the wisest thing to do, plant a tree and give it three to four years to produce fruit and drop the fruit and produce and, and get to where it's healthy and strong, and then you can begin to pick fruit and eat from it. So that, that, that's just good gardening. But this is more than that. There are two important spiritual principles here. You might want to jot these down. The first one is watch for the fruit. Watch for the fruit. When you enter the land, plant the fruit trees and, and then watch for the fruit. But don't eat of it yet. Just keep an eye on it. That way you know what kind of fruit tree it is, for one thing. Watch for the fruit. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 18, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And he's talking about teachers. Talking about teachers. False teachers or true. Good teachers or bad. You're going to know by their fruit. You're going to know by what they do. And how they live out what they are teaching. But watch how the holy horticulturist does it himself. John chapter 15. Turn in your Bibles over there. John chapter 15. I'll take a sip. You turn. Watch for the fruit. Watch for the fruit. Listen to Jesus. John chapter 15, verse 1. He says... I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now note this, first of all, it's every branch that's in me. So these are people who are followers of Jesus. We can say these are Christians he's talking about. And every Christian, if we want to translate it that way, every Christian that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Don't read it wrong. What a vine dresser would do when a vine is not producing fruit, the very thing he would do is airo that vine. It's translated here, he takes away, but the word is airo, which means lifts up. And a good vine dresser will lift up a vine off the ground. It's not producing fruit, it's down there on the ground. You lift it up, you put a stick or something under it to hold it up. If you've seen vineyards, you know they get the vineyards up on, on these uh, trellises or, or these fences so that they can breathe, they can be oxygenated, they can receive water, and that tends to help them grow. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. And every branch that bears fruit, 
He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Planting and pruning, my friends, it takes time. Watch for the fruit. This has been a year of pruning. And it's been a year of lifting up. It's been a time of, of discomfort for a lot of us. Myself, absolutely. I, I can't even tell you. I, it would take forever and it would be way too much about me if I sat down and talked to you about all the ways that I have been pruned this year and pruned through this season. Not, not in a bad way, though. God has been at work in me and in my heart. I'm so thankful for that. For the good, the bad, and the ugly that's taken place over 2020, okay, bring it on because the pruning will allow for more fruit. And the Lord knows this. And for some of us, he's gonna lift us up off the ground, out of the dirt, so that we can oxygenate, so that we can then have an opportunity to grow. For others, he's clipping and pruning and cutting here and there. And that's not always fun. How about you? Are, are you being pruned? Have you been pruned this year? Have you found him cutting off branches and leaves and twigs and aspects of your life? That, oh, but I kind of like that one. He's pruning. Lifting up, up again, the, the branches of our lives that have been in the dirt. Why? To make us holy. And, and cutting off the dead, useless stuff in our lives. Good fruit. Good fruit. Watch for the fruit. And know at the same time, secondly, wait for the fruit. Wait for it because good fruit takes time and patience. Wait for it. It's okay not to have immediate answers for everything. As I shared a little while ago, even in our response to COVID-19 and government mandates and all of that, I am not moving. I have not moved. We have not moved as fast as some have wanted us to move. I know that. Some have said, Rick, you're being way too cautious. I know that. I'm aware of that. I don't, think, I'm, I don't stick my head in the wall and ignore everything. But Rick, we need to do this. I know what people want and I know what people don't want and I hear both sides and right up the middle and everything. I know. Wait. Wait. You know what we talked about on Christmas Eve is that the wonderful thing about miracles is that you never know when they're just about to happen. And the wonderful thing about waiting on the Lord is you never know when he's just about to change direction. We don't know. So we wait and we listen to him because good fruit takes time. Wait for it. You might say in your life, I just wish that he'd come and get me and be done with all this. Rapture time, Lord. I can't tell you how many times this year I've prayed, rapture time, Lord. I've taken to unlacing my shoes just to be ready to go. James chapter 5, verse 7 says, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. By the way, this is the time of the late rains. We're in the season of the late rains, the Spirit pouring out the fresh water to finally have us ready to be borne up as fruit unto the Lord. It says, You too be patient, strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is near, and that I can promise you, which is why we're going to talk about it on Sunday morning. Verse 26 of chapter 19, go on back there. Actually, no, I'm going to finish. You go back there, but let me finish, because there are a couple other things Jesus said. He says in verse 4, abide in me, 
and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Why, Lord? For apart from me, you can do nothing. Or we might say, or hear him say, I am the Lord, your God. This is my deal, not yours. Leviticus 19, 26. He goes on, he says, you shall not eat anything with blood. Okay, we've heard that. You shall not practice divination or soothsaying. You are not to round off the side growth of your heads <laughs> or harm the edges of your beard, Dean. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Verse 29, do not profane your daughter by making her a harlot, so that the land will not fall to harlotry, and the land will not become full of lewdness, and that harlotry specifically is, I think what's indicated there is temple prostitution, idolatrous harlotry. Don't sell your daughters into the way of the Canaanites, you might say. What do all these things have in common? These few verses, they, they seem to be completely random. Don't drink blood, practice divination or soothsaying. Don't trim your beard. Don't get tattoos. Don't cut in your body. Don't have piercings, I guess you could say. Don't profane your daughter and make her a harlot. What, what? Random, 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 right? Wrong. What do they have in common? They are all unholy pagan idolatry. That's why these are grouped together. These were all things that people did as acts of idolatry, of, of paganism, of heathenism. They're bundled here from bloody stake to a daughter in harlotry because these were pagan practices and God says don't act like they act. Don't do what they do. These are customs that at the time would defile the people and draw them away from the Lord who is right now saying, be holy for I am holy. Come back to me. I am the Lord your God. Don't go running after all these false gods and idols. So is getting a tattoo forbidden in the Bible? Hmm. I've been asked this question before, and I've been pointed to this verse. And I think I mentioned to you recently that it's funny to me. I even saw online that you can get a tattoo of this verse. <laughs> wow. Let me give you my response. This is just Rick's response to tattoos. There may be some wisdom in here, but there may not be. This is just coming from me. First of all, I advise against getting a tattoo for the dead because that's why they did it. You see, in Egypt, it was all part of a pagan cult to get tattoos to worship the dead. So they would brand their skin with a picture of a person or the name of a person, that their name would be there for them to worship and, and adulate and, and pray to. They'd have that name, that face right there in a tattoo form. God says, don't do that. I am the Lord your God, not the person who died. Why would you call on them? They can do nothing for you. I am the Lord. And hair rounding, as it's described here, or beard trimming, body piercing and tattooing, all four of those things in Egypt were about honoring and worshiping dead people. And it was all about a, a pagan dead cult. What do you think about piercings and tattoos today, though? 
Well, my answer to that, because we're not talking about an Egyptian cult issue, it's, it's between you, your skin, and the Lord. So you gotta, you gotta talk to him about that. I'm not gonna give you one way or the other. I, I can tell you, obviously, don't do it for pagan reasons. That's kind of clear. But the other thing I would say is just remember that tattoos are permanent. So think before you ink. You know, younger people especially understand that what's really cool right now, in your 40s, you'll look at it and go, that was so stupid. Why did I get this name of this band? They broke up and I don't even like their music anymore. Just think about it. What's cool today may be lame tomorrow and it is permanent. So I don't personally see tattoos as inherently wrong. But I will say this final thing about them, my opinion. All of these things, from eating and drinking blood to practice of divination and soothsaying to piercings, body piercings and tattoos and harlotry, sexual lewdness, all of this stuff right here, they tend to increase as societies fall. Again, it's not a judgment about a tattoo in particular or someone's decision to have a tattoo, but it is interesting how right now in our culture, we are a marked society big time. I like what Paul said. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Man, if you're gonna be tattooed, be tattooed by the love of Christ. If you're gonna have a mark on you, let it be because you are serving the Lord Jesus. Let it be for him. And I'm not saying go right out and get a cross on your back, okay? Verse 30, verse 30, you shall keep my Shabbats and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I want you where I am. I, he's drawing the people back. Why do we keep Sabbath? As I said before, because it's in the quiet that we hear him. That's when we understand his will better than any other time. And when we're in his sanctuary, we can listen and be focused on him. Revere the sanctuary. Keep my Sabbath. And by the way, for us today, not as a legalistic thing, but having a day every week where we are just quiet and relaxed and can just listen and see what's on the Lord's mind is a good thing. Don't drive seven days, you know, 24-7. Give yourself time to hear from the Lord. Verse, where are we? 31, do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord, your God. Why are you listening to these people who say they're channeling other spirits as if you need them for a mediator? The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the only intercessor between us. We go to him and through him. We listen to God through Christ, who is God. He's the point. Verse 32, you shall rise up before the gray-headed, listen to me on this, because I got some on the sides of my head, and honor the aged. And you shall revere your God. I am the Lord, and I love this about the Lord, that he honors age. He honors longevity of life. He honors those who have grayness in the head. 
In fact, the Bible even says a gray head is a crown of glory. You won't hear that in American society. A gray head is a doddering old fool. No, not according to this word. God says a gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. It's a good thing. Honor those who have been here longer than you have. Proverbs 20, verse 29, the glory of young men is their strength and the honor of old men is their gray hair. We go, ah, give me some Grecian formula. God goes, no, no, this is your honor. This is a good thing. Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. There is this beautiful honor that Scripture gives that the Lord calls for for people older than ourselves, and I would say that at any age. You're 70 years old, honor the 80-year-olds that you know. You're 80, honor the 90-year-olds as having a few more years on you. You're 20, honor the 30 and 40-year-olds. Honor up, I guess is a way to say it. There's something I realized. I had a conversation with a younger sister earlier this week, really good talk, and, and I was sharing with her that there's something I realized at the age of 56 that I did not know at the age of 26. And I'll share that with you right now. What I didn't know when I was 26 that I now know at 56 is that at 26, I thought I knew it all. And at 56, I realized I don't know hardly anything. And the older I get, the more I realize what I don't know, how much there is to understand and comprehend. I don't have all the answers. I'm holding all the answers. Everything pertaining to life and godliness he's given us by his word and by his spirit. But at this point in life, walking through this season of COVID and quarantines and lockdowns and how the church has been so gut-punched by all of this, you think I came into this season knowing what I would do or how we would deal with this? Come on. I still every day go, Lord, what now? How do we do this? Listen to me, younger people. Older people are naturally going to be humbled by what they don't know. It happens to all of us. We hit a point where we realize we did not know what we thought we knew when we were young men and women. There is a humbling that happens the older you get. It is natural, it is part of God's design, and it's beautiful because he, he glorifies humility. But younger people listen. As older people are humbled by what they don't know, younger people need to honor them for what they do know, which is still a whole lot more than what you think you know. Are you with me on that? And I do even today. I, 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 you know, I'm 56. I have men around me, women around me, who have 10, 20, 30, 40 years on me, and I have deep respect for them and where they're coming from and what they have to say and what their perspective is on life. I listen because they know what I don't know, and they also know that they don't know <laughs> And we all know we need Jesus. 
Verse 33, when, you're a, when a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. What does that say about the Christian attitude toward immigration in the United States of America? And I'll just let you sit with that one. Regardless of all the politics of the last four to six years, what are we as followers of Jesus Christ to do with the foreigner, with the alien, with the immigrant? I don't even know what the correct word usage is now. What are we supposed to do? Well, according to the Lord, love him as yourself. Treat him as you would treat your own. You don't look at them as different. Someone comes into this country, what, you know, legally, illegally, all that stuff, I'll let the government deal with that. My responsibility to that person is to show them the love of Christ, period. And that's just Bible. At a minimum, the church ought to lead the way in compassionate care for the stranger among us. Because in the church, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, he says, remember, you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So treat people that same way. Or we might say, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 35, you shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen. I am the Lord your God. And these are all measures and weights and balances. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall thus observe all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them. I am the Lord. Why are we to do this? I am the Lord. Now, chapter 20, and this will move quickly, so stay with me. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, a man from the sons of Israel, from the aliens sojourning in Israel, who gives any of his offspring to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Harsh punishment? Remember what it meant to give a child to Molech, to lay a baby on the molten hot burning arms of the idol until it wiggled and screamed and fell into the belly, which was a furnace. It was a vile, brutal, horrific way to kill a child, and that's what they did. And as I said recently, they did it because they believed by doing this that the spirit of the child would go into the next child that was born, and they would be blessed. So it's a good thing. No, it's not. It's a great big lie. Just like saying, hey, an abortion now will make life easier for us for later. No, it won't, because you're going to carry the burden of that the rest of your life. Don't sacrifice a child to Molech. It says in verse three, I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Molech so as to, to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. So this is the person who has now been stoned to death because they did that and God says, and in addition, I'm cutting him off from my people. Indication, implication, they will not rest with their fathers. They will not be in heaven. Verse four, if the people of the land, however, should ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Molech. So if they don't do anything about it, 
so as not to put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut off from among their people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Molech. I'll deal with this if you don't. Serious business. Zero tolerance for sacrificing your children to a false god. But have you ever heard somebody say, I'm gonna let Junior make his own or her own decision about God. I'm gonna let them grow up and decide if they wanna go to church, decide if they wanna follow Jesus. I'm gonna let them make that decision. I don't wanna make it for them. You might as well say, I'm gonna let my child's human rebellion take over and lead them away from God. Because that's, that's what we're saying when we don't call our children to follow the Lord. And parents, listen to me. You can spend a lifetime calling a son or daughter to follow the Lord and they may yet choose not to. And that is not on you. Your responsibility, mothers and fathers, is to tell them about Jesus, to show them right from wrong, to teach them the word of God. Their responsibility is in how they receive it. But to just say, ah, oh, we're, we're gonna hand them over to the world and let them make up their own mind. You might as well be putting them on the altar of Molech. That's just my own opinion. It's handing them over to death. Leviticus chapter 20, verse six. As for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I'll also set my face against that person and will cut him off from among my people. You shall also consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Verse eight, you shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And so again, he circles back to his innate holiness. I'm holy, that's who I am. I want you with me, therefore be holy as I am holy. How are we to act? How are we to live? How are, to, how are we to be in this world? We are to be as those who belong to him, which again means Holy. Now, the rest, next section I'm gonna read quickly. We're gonna go all the way through several verses. Know that now we're coming to what I would call the punishment phase, specifically of many of the sins that were already called out in Leviticus 18. So I'm not gonna review every one of those, but understand this is the punishment for the commission of those sins, many of them sexual sins. So verse nine. They therefore shall keep my, oh wait, wrong, wrong one. Verse nine, yeah, chapter 20. If there is anyone who curses his father or his mother, he shall surely be put to death. That used to scare me as a kid. <laughs> he has cursed his father or his mother. His blood guiltiness is upon him. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. I told you that verse was here. If there's a man who lies with his father's wife, He's uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there's a man who lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They've committed incest. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there's a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, and you can't be any clearer or plainer than that, both of them have committed a detestable act, God's word. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there is a man who marries a woman and her mother, <laughs> it's an immorality. It is immorality. The word immorality, it's sexual immorality. Both he and they shall be burned with fire so that there will be no immorality in your midst. 
If there is a man who lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death. You shall also kill the animal. And this is not talking about you just got a new puppy, Soren, and, and he sleeps in your bed at night. That's fine. That's not what we're talking about here. You guys know what he's saying here. If there's a woman who approaches any animal to mate with it, have you read in the headlines recently? I, I forget the story, but I know there was a man who married his pet. What does God say? How did we get there? If, a, if there's a woman who approaches an animal to mate with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Poor animal. Well, hey, holiness, my friends. Verse 17, if there is a man who takes his sister his father's daughter or his mother's daughter so that he sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness. It's a disgrace. They shall be cut off in the sight of the sons of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He bears his guilt. If there's a man who lies with a menstruous woman and uncovers her nakedness, he has laid bare her flow and she has exposed the flow of her blood. Thus both of them shall be cut off from among the people. You also shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or your father's sister for such a one has made naked his blood relative, they will bear their guilt. If there is a man who lies with his uncle's wife, as he, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness, and they will bear their sin, they will die childless. If there is a man who takes his brother's wife, it is abhorrent. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness, and they will be childless. Listen to me, adultery, incest, homosexuality, incestuous polygamy, or adultery that's incestuous, bestiality. All these things the Lord describes with words like detestable and abhorrent. This is not how Pastor Rick feels about these things except that I agree with the Lord, but it's how God feels about these things. It's God's opinion. It's God's holy view of all of these behaviors. He's the one who says this is a detestable thing. This is abhorrent. This is so self-destructive. And at the head of the list, cursing parents. I thought I was fine with all the others. And there's cursing parents. My friends, these were all things that were punishable by death. Well, wait, they don't all say the death penalty. I mean, there's some that say I'll cut them off and there's others that say they'll, they'll be childless. Listen, these are all punishable by death, whether it's social death, physical death, genealogical death, national death, physical death, because all these things kill. Verse 22, you are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. National death. Moreover, you, are, you shall not follow the customs of the nations or the nation which I will drive out before you, the Canaanites, for they did all these things. And therefore, I have abhorred them. God didn't hate the Canaanites. He hate what they did. He hated what they did. He hated the sin. And it was the sin that caused the driving out, the sin that caused the spewing out. And right here, real quickly, we see hints of the conditional Mosaic covenant, which we've talked about before is the only covenant of God with conditions. 
Every other covenant God made, the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Adamic covenant, all the way back to the beginning. Every covenant God made was unconditional, one-sided. I'm going to do this for you. I will bring this about for you. The Mosaic covenant is the one where he says, if you do this, then I will do this. If you do not do this, then this is what will happen. And for them to disobey the Lord at this point, to do the things that he's called out ahead of time here, would bring national death to the people of Israel. And it did. First, the 10 northern tribes of the kingdom of Israel, 722 BC, driven out by Assyria because they became idolatrous. And then southern, the southern kingdom of Judah, followed suit, driven out, called, caught, brought into captivity by Babylon, 586 BC, because they did these things and they rejected the Lord. And the whole lot, but for a tiny remnant, there's always been a remnant in the land, but the whole lot were spewed out in A.D. 70 because they rejected the Messiah that was sent to them. So three instances where we see the people of the land spewed out exactly like God warned would happen. But the covenant conditions of this law are here to teach us something incredibly serious. Let's finish up. Verse 24. Hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, he says again, who has separated you from the peoples. You are there to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean, and you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. And we saw all that that he talked about. You are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine, he says, now a man or a woman who's a medium or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. And you might say, well, wait a minute. It was so well summed up in verse 26. And then in verse 27, God throws an extra tag in there for the spiritist or the medium. Why didn't he put that up earlier in the passage? Why is it where it is? It's almost like God's giving a postscript. Oh yeah, and one more thing. See, I would do that. Jake would definitely do that. <laughs> One more thought. That's not what God's doing here. God is underscoring his warning against mediums and spiritists, those who claim to channel spirits because they speak the language of the devil. They are not speaking for God. False words are in their mouths and their intention is to speak away from the true word of God. And the whole point here is God is speaking his word and saying, listen to me, come to me, draw near to me, because I'm holy. Now listen. We started off with such a beautiful idea tonight. And the truth is that God is a forgiving, redeeming, reclaiming father. I said that the unholy can be made holy. Oh, that's beautiful. That even... The holy that's been tainted can be made holy and clean again. But we end here 
by reading a chapter, chapter 20, that calls for the death penalty. Again, socially, physically, genealogically, and finally, nationally. Cursing parents, sexual sin, a nation that rejects God, it all ends in the same place. And if you read chapter 20, as some have done, and you say, this is extreme. Cursing parents resulting in being stoned to death sounds awfully extreme. Does capital punishment seem extreme for many of these things? Listen, while death may seem extreme for these things, the Lord is solemnly warning us that the wages of sin is death. That's what sin does. Chapter 20 is about the Lord saying we will stop these things because if we don't, it will be death to everybody as it would be for the Canaanites. Your sin will result in death. That is the path of sin. That is the path of all sin is it ends in death. The Lord says, or Paul writes in Romans chapter six, verse 16, Listen to this. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, as Les talked about on Sunday, as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And I love that Paul puts it this way because it's so clear. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you, my friend, are a slave of Jesus Christ. Indentured servitude, and it is the best way to live because it is slavery that is ultimate freedom. Slaves to obedience to righteousness, or you can be a slave to sin. Those are the two choices. I'm going to choose sin, and I'm going to be a slave to sin, or I'm going to choose Jesus, and I'm going to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and that's where freedom is. And Paul says, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That's a good thing. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members... So that is everything about you. Spirit, soul, and body. Present who you are. Present your members, he says. And I lost my place. As slaves to... Wait. As you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. God's not looking for part of you. He wants all of you. Every aspect of who you are, what you think, what you do, how you feel, everything. He wants drawn near. Your body, your soul, and your spirit. God wants it all. Paul says when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. <laughs> He's making a contrast. You didn't have to be righteous. You didn't have to worry about that because you were a slave of sin. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, as it were, 
You derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. And then he says it, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's huge. I mean, the holy recovery that we've been talking about and dealing with in in this section. Gang, before the new year and tonight, it requires the removal of sin. If I'm gonna be wholly recovered to the Lord, sin must be pruned away in my life. If I'm gonna draw near to the Lord, sin must be cut off. Sin is either gonna kill or be killed. That's the only two options. It must die because sin itself will kill. But the Lord, as our vine dresser, as Jesus said, what does he do? He desires to lift us up out of the dirt. Why? To oxygenate us by his spirit so that we can breathe and we can live and know real life. He prunes us and he clips to remove the deadly, serious disease of sin from our lives. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Every sin dealt with in this holiness code, every single one of these sins kills relationship. It either kills a relationship with God or it kills a relationship with your neighbor. Every one of these. And so God says, That's why the death penalty is applied here. And note that with grace, he says it beforehand. He gives it as a standard, not as an afterthought. Oh, he did what? Well, let's kill him. There's no surprise here with the Lord. He loves too much, too deeply. No wonder Jesus taps Leviticus 19, 18, saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Two reasons. First, because he's the Lord our God. And second, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. So the love of God is the basis for every standard in the book of Leviticus. It all comes from the heart of love. And Father, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for helping us the way you do to recognize that, that this is the the heart of a loving father that these warnings and these truths are to steer us away from the sin that would kill us. God, you are so gracious and you are so true. We realize that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth are realized in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord, tonight we would comprehend how vast, how deep, how great your love is for us, that we would be drawn near to you in holiness. Father, make us holy because you are holy. In Jesus' name, amen.